Our message tonight is entitled Digital Rooftops. Digital Rooftops. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to, to visit with your word and to have your word come alive. Make me a nail upon a, on a wall once again, Lord, rusty and sorry. Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ upon that nail tonight so that I, Eric Walsh, have not heard. Instead, Father God, tonight we need to hear a word from the throne room of grace. It's our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So we're going to start tonight by talking about one of my favorite Bible characters, um, a king, shepherd boy, uh, a youngest sibling, a master musician, a poet, songwriter by the name of David. If you understand David, there's a lot that the Bible will teach you about life. First of all, let's start in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14. We're going to start at the time when David is called. The time when David is called, the Bible says, 1 Samuel 13 and 14, but now thy kingdom shall not continue, speaking to Saul. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. The Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. So David, from the outset, is chosen to be king over Israel because he is a man after God's own heart. Now, his name, the name David, oh, Acts 13, 22, I skip one. And when he had removed him, talking about Saul again, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave their testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. Important to remember that that's the starting point of where we come into David's story. Now, David is the Hebrew word David, which was probably derived from Hebrew uh, DWD, meaning beloved. It's probably what David means. No one else in the entire Bible has the name David. He's a shepherd, musician, a giant killer. One of my favorite Bible stories is how he trash talks um, Goliath and then whoops him. I think that's a great story. He's a warrior. He was anointed out of turn. When this prophet came to look for who was to be the next king, he came to Jesse's house. Jesse showed him every one of his sons except David. When Samuel was done examining all the other brothers, he said, wait a minute, is there anybody else here? And they said, eh, yeah, one, the little, the little runty little one that we leave out there with the sheep. David. And the one that was forgotten was the one who was called. Is a king, and he was a mega superstar. In fact, David was so popular that when he and Saul came back from battle, the women the women would sing, "Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands." He was a rock star. He's a modern term. He was a superstar. He was loved by the people. But eventually, we fast forward in the story, and David is king. He's successful. Israel has peace. He's beat up most of his enemies. He's finishing up the job. When we jump into the story of 2 Samuel 10 and verse 18, the Bible says, 
Assyrians had fled before Israel, their, one of their arch nemesis. David slew the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians and 40,000 horsemen. You see these numbers? He smote Shobach, the captain of their host, who died there. When all the kings that were servants that Adarezar saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel. But they would make peace. And they served Israel. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore. And David got to a point where he was really making the world quiet for his people. David was a warrior king. But he wasn't just a warrior king. He was an incredibly successful warrior king. He laid down his enemies by the power of God. He, those who didn't, he didn't fight. They asked for peace. Israel had never known a time like this uh, really in its existence domination and a king. But the first lesson I want to give you tonight is this one. The enemy uses success or failure. David was very successful. The enemy couldn't make him quit when Saul was chasing him. The enemy couldn't get David to be killed by Saul. He tried to have Saul kill David. But the enemy could not beat David. So sometimes what the enemy will do, we'll talk more about this on Sabbath, but Sometimes what the enemy will do is he will not use failure to destroy you. He will use success. Sometimes what the devil will do is actually make sure that you get what it is you want in a bid to make you complacent, in a bid to make you lay down uh, your vigilance for the Lord. The enemy will sometimes allow you to be successful so that you will stop fighting for God. Never forget that lesson. There's many people that come from Jamaica or Ghana and they reach to the United States or, or Europe and they get there and they start making money that has a lot of value and they buy a nice car and a nice house. And all of a sudden, when success reaches them, church is no longer so important. They don't really worry about being Adventist anymore. So I challenge you when you're successful, to always remember something I told you last night, success doesn't come from you. Give God the credit for your success and move on. If not, what happens to David can happen to you. Second Samuel 11 says, uh, And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. So it was a time of year when the kings would all go to fight. David was supposed to go and fight with all the other kings. David was so successful, he's like, eh, I'm going to stay home. Chill out. No reason for me to go fight. We can't lose. And so he sends Joab to go and fight instead. So David doesn't go. Joab goes. And when Joab goes, they do well. So David stays at home. The Bible says he tarries, meaning he that if you take that word back to the Hebrew, it's like he, he hangs out knowing he really should have gone. The second lesson, an idle mind is easily corrupted. My Jamaican grandmother had a lot of fame, really good, wise quotes. And she would say stuff like, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. They say that down here. Yeah, they love that one, don't they? You said that minding your own business at home, your mother kicking the room door like some Arnold Schwarzenegger or something in the Terminator, and she's like, and I don't mind the devil's workshop. Man, I just got a tool. I just want to hang out for a second. Right? And I don't 
mind is easily corrupted. Ellen White says in the book Ministry of Healing, page 208, she says, it is wrong to waste our time, wrong to waste our thoughts. We lose every moment that we devote to self-seeking. If every moment were valued and rightly employed, we should have time for everything that we need to do for ourselves and for, or for the world. In the expenditure of money, in the use of time, strength, opportunities, let every Christian look to God for guidance. We are not to simply sit around. The second reason why David gets in trouble, he's successful, and then when he's supposed to be busy working for God, he's idle. So I want to challenge you again. I've been doing this all week. I want to challenge all of you again. Do not be idle on this campus in winning souls for Jesus Christ. Amen? Be busy about it. I know you have to study, study but like, like Sister White says here, if we should have time for everything, if every moment we're valued and rightly employed, we should have time for everything that we need to do for ourselves or for the world. Let's get back to the story. 2 Samuel 11 verse 2 says, And it came to pass in an evening time, but now the story gets good. It's not like the sermon. It's, when I get to this part, everybody gets quiet, attentive. It's all interesting. I know, but I'm, I'm not going to look at it in you. I'm just going to keep reading. And it came to pass in an evening time that David arose from off his bed and walked up on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. The Bible says, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. All right, yeah, the story gets good. I see you smirking. It's all right. So he wakes up off his bed. He's bored. Now, it's not like he don't have women. David's got wives and concubines. There's no reason for him to go looking for any more women. But he's on his bed, and he's bored. Remember, he's idle. He's supposed to be at war. He's supposed to be sleeping in a tent with a bunch of dudes all around him waiting to beat up, up the enemy. But he's at home, kicking it all by himself, hanging out, Gets up off his bed, stretches, eh, let me go up on the roof. He gets up on the rooftop, and when he looks, Jiminy, he jumps almost off the roof, and like those old cartoons, his eyes fall out of his head and roll down the floor, his tongue rolls out like a red carpet onto the floor. David sees a woman that stops his very heart from beating. He goes into cardiac arrest, he's shocked, he doesn't know what to do. His electrical uh, uh, vibes in his body are overdrive. He's shaking. He can't think straight. His mind turns to Play-Doh and buddy, he's like a big old child right now. And as David said, the Bible, to, 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 to make the point, the Bible says that this woman was very beautiful to look upon. Right, let me look, let you in on a secret. Her name some other characteristics indicate that this was a very dark-skinned woman. Are y'all missing this thing? Y'all missing this thing? This was this was a woman of color. She was dark-skinned, dark like many of us in the room. She was beautiful, voluptuous, shapely. David had never seen nothing like this. He was eating waffles, and for the first time, he saw a big old sandwich. He didn't know what to do. He was on the rooftop when he wasn't supposed to be. She was on the rooftop washing herself because according to the Jewish law, at the end of her menstrual cycle, there was a whole process of washing that she had to do. People argue whose fault it was that this happened. I'm not sure it really matters, except 
And David being the king is the one in the position of power. He's the one at the higher level. He's the one who is closer to God, at least based on the way the scripture describes it. He's the one with the greater responsibility. And let me leave with the men today the idea that when it comes to sexual purity, it's not the woman that has the greater responsibility as society teaches. It's you, the man. You hear crickets now. That's okay. Because if you, it's always on the woman. You got to dress a certain way. You got to talk a certain way. Don't look at guys a certain way. It's always on the woman. The reality is the man is one day to be the priest of a house. That means that the spiritual responsibility of priesthood resides with you before you have a house to be priest over. Which means you have the greater spiritual responsibility, just like David did, regardless of what the woman does. Y'all missing this thing. I don't care if she bats her eyes and winks and if she wears the nicest perfume and she's trying to priest. Remember Joseph? When, when, when Potiphar's wife came at Joseph, Joseph turned into a track star. He was like Usain Bolt. He was out of that house so fast, he ran out of his shirt or his robe. He was gone. The man has responsibility. I'm not even going to bring up the woman's role in this because I'm going to leave it with you men that you have the responsibility. I want you to understand the weight of what it means to be a man, especially in the day and age in which we live. She was very beautiful to look upon. David is messed up, can't think straight. One thing you need to know that this, unfortunately, men don't have the cerebral connections that women have. See, women's brains across their corpus callosum of the middle of their brain, they have connections between their left and right brain that make women have intuition, make women have a lot of stuff men don't have. They get better linguistically because of that. Women have a lot of advantages. Men don't have that. Men are much more concrete thinkers. They usually only function out of one half of their brain. Mercy. So if this woman was that beautiful, one part of David's brain lit up and everything went up, switched off. Click. Third lesson. Self and flesh love the rooftop. Your flesh will always want to be in a position where you can look down on someone else for your own pleasure. You getting this? So you're always, the devil, or your flesh, yourself, and your pride always want to bring you up so you can look down on someone else. Ellen White says in the Adventist homepage 330, she says, both men and women must keep their place and live above reproach. The mind of a man or woman does not come down in a moment from purity and holiness to depravity, corruption, and crime. It takes time to transform the human to the divine or to degrade those formed in the image of God to the brutal or the satanic. Here's where we quote this quote all the time. It's not in the Bible. This is where the quote is. She says, by beholding, we become changed. By beholding, we become changed. So if you're going to be sexually pure, it means that you cannot behold things that work against that. You will become what you look at. What you play in video games, what you search on your phone, all of those things will do that. And self, the flesh, is what it is that wants to put you in a position to bring you down and degrade you. There is a constant war going on in your heart and in your mind around the issue of purity. God, through his spirit, is working through the part of your brain where your conscience sits in the frontal lobe of your brain 
trying to work to tell you, live right, do right. And at the same time, your own flesh is crying out saying, I have needs. And the devil wants you to feed the flesh and starve the spirit. Because if you do that, he gains advantage in your life. So we're going to look at the rooftop of technology. And that's why the sermon is called the digital rooftop. Because all of us now have rooftops on our smartphones, on our tablets, on our computers, on the computers we borrow. So aided by the convenience and constant access provided by mobile devices, especially smartphones, 92% of teens, this is American data, but we can extrapolate. In fact, I see pretty much everybody on the phones here just like there. 92% of teens report going online every single day, including 24% who say they go online almost constantly. How do you stay online all the time? How do you eat and go to the bathroom? You're always online. More than half, 56% of teens defined in this report as, as those age 13 to 17 go online several times a day. 12% report once a day used. Just 6% of teens report going online weekly and 2% go online less often. This is from 2015, so it's probably worse now. Much of the frenzy of access is facilitated by mobile devices. Nearly three quarters of teens have or have access to a smartphone and 30% of the basic phone. So these numbers are much higher now. Of just 12% of teens, 13 to 17, say they have no cell phone of any type. African-American teens are the most likely of any group of teens to have a smartphone, with 85% having access to one compared with 71% of white Hispanic teens. So in America, black teens have the most access. That's not a good thing in this case. African-American and Hispanic youth report more frequent internet use than white teens among African-American teens. 34% report going online almost constantly. One out of three, as do 32% of Hispanic teens, while 90% of white teens go online that often. So when we look at America and we look at the discrepancies in, in success in school, one of the things you know traditionally before the smartphone is African-American kids used to watch, on average, eight hours of television a day. That's a full-time job. You can make a lot of money, even working at McDonald's, eight hours a day. But now it's switched, and this has become what is so enamoring. This is what they're locked onto. This is the rooftop. The rooftop now is in your pocket. You carry it around in your hand. You can go up on the rooftop and look down on the Bathshebas of this world simply by going online with your smartphone. Research has long established that teens who watch movies, this is an important slide. Research has long established that teens who watch movies or listen to music that glamorizes drinking, drug use, or violence tend to engage in those behaviors themselves. By beholding, you become what? So do you see what's happening? The research, this is scientific research, it says, actually, we've, we've, we've already established this, that if you listen to music that tells you to you know, shoot, kill, and maim, you're more likely to actually go out and shoot, kill, or maim someone. It goes on and it says, a 2012 study shows that movies influence teens' sexual attitudes and behaviors as well. The study published in Psychological Science found that the more teens were exposed to sexual content in movies, the earlier they started having sex, and the likelier they were to have casual, unprotected sex. By beholding what happens, you become changed. When you understand this, and this is secular research, this is not this is, these people aren't Christians who wrote this or published this or did the research, I would assume. 
But when you understand that that statement, by beholding we become changed, is true, it ought to affect the way you think about what you watch, what you listen to, everything about what you do. Because some of the sin we're struggling with is sometimes sin we're literally feeding ourselves. In other words, we like a certain television program, and that program, by modeling a behavior, is making it more difficult for you to give up that behavior. So one of the things you got to do if you want to gain victory over sin in the modern era, you've got to say, what sin is it that I need deliverance from? And then what is it that I'm listening to, watching, reading, that's feeding that sin? So you got to starve the flesh if you're going to gain victory over the flesh. Amen? Preliminary analysis of data from a 2016 Indiana University survey of more than 600 pairs of children and their parents reveals a parental naivete gap. Half as many parents thought their 14 and 18 year olds had seen porn as had in fact watched it. Depending on the sex act, parents underestimated what their kids saw by as much as 10 times. So that holds true here in Africa. That means that many of you have done stuff your parents can't imagine you've done. You've watched stuff your parents would never imagine you've watched. In, in fact, if you've ever read the book, um, The Diary of Anne Frank, it's a great book. Probably many of you read it. I've been to Holland and visited the little house. One of the things that her father says, if you visit the museum that the house is, he says that after reading the diary, he could not believe how little he actually knew about his daughter, paraphrasing. Like, there was so much more going on. She had a crush on a boy and all of this, and he didn't think she had any interest like that at all. So many times, we're living with secret sin, secret stuff we're messing with. Our parents don't know. And now that you're in college, your parents are further away. You can hide it from your roommates, hide it from the chaplain. You can hide it from your friends or whoever. But it will still impact you. In fact, the secret nature of it will often make it more addicting because addiction flourishes in secret. That's where addiction actually flourishes. A growing number of young men, this is a crazy slide, but young men need to see this. A growing number of young men are convinced that their physical, in-person sexual responses have been sabotaged because their brains were virtually marinated in porn when they were adolescents. Their generation has consumed explicit content in quantities and varieties never before possible on devices designed to deliver content swiftly and privately, all at an age when their brains were more plastic, more prone to permanent change than later in life. These young men feel like unwitting guinea pigs in a large, largely unmonitored, decade-long experiment in sexual conditioning. This is something I've seen with some of my patients. They come in, and now they're 30 years old, and they're married, and they cannot be sexual with their spouse, with their wife. Because they have been so trained by watching pornography that the, re the fantasy of pornography their wife can't keep up with. Are you getting what I'm saying? In other words, so they've exposed themselves to this material to the point where it has sabotaged them forever actually having real sexual fulfillment for the rest of their lives. Because they can't reproduce what they've been watching on their phone in terms of pornography. Now I pray... None of you guys watch pornography, but I know in the States it's a major problem. And I want to submit to you, any of you, male or female, are doing this, this is something you got to pray about and break away from. Because it is just as addicting 
just as binding as a chemical substance like cocaine. And what young men feel later on is that society told them, it's okay, watch the porn, it's not big, no big deal, do this, do that. And later on, they realize consequences they have when they are no longer psychologically sexually normal. Because really, the biggest, most important sexual organ in a person is their brain. And the devil understands that, so he wants to mess with your brain. He wants to lay down habits and patterns in your mind around sex and sexuality that will cause you to have a stumbling block spiritually the rest of your life. That's what the devil's after. He wants to mess you up. And you notice what the researchers say here. They say, listen, this happens at a time, at an age when their brain, the boy's brains, are more plastic, more prone to permanent change than later in life. In other words, when you're young, your brain is more malleable, it's more moldable, it's more formable. Your brain does not finish developing until you're 25, 26 years old. So when you start smoking weed or drinking alcohol or watching pornography at 15 and 16, you literally permanently alter the way your brain was to be developed, especially on certain issues. This is really important stuff because you live in a time when, especially if you leave here and go to uh, the West, you live in a time when you're gonna, and there's so much explicit sexual material and the society is so sexually open that if you're not careful and if you can't manage and control these things, Satan will sweep you away like he did David. The rooftop of technology. It's digital. It's movies you can download on your computer without ever getting up and going to a store. There's websites that all they do is pornographic stuff. That's all they show. Free of charge. That's that's totally contrary to God. Totally set up by the devil. But it's more than that. I don't know if you have these guys have these apps in Africa, but in the States they have apps like Tinder. These dating hookup apps, and you just do this on the phone, people just meet and they just hook up and they're intimate in a second. That's why one of the reasons I believe in America we're watching a massive epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases like gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, and even HIV rates in some populations are going up. So I'm challenging you to understand this is not something to play with. When you're living in a world of less lust, just like when you're living in a world of, a, of chemical addiction, you don't make good decisions. You can actually ruin your whole future over this stuff. So this one, this slide just shows the girls are more into the, the web, the, um, the apps and like, like, um, like Twitter or, or Instagram and the more Snapchat and that type of stuff. And boys are still more into playing video games. Don't get into that too much here. But even the video games, and I, I don't know if you guys play video games like they do in the States, but this father in this cartoon says, son, you haven't uh, been watching that hidden sex scene on your Grand Theft Auto game, have you? And a little boy says, no, just stealing cars and killing cops, that sort of thing. So the games, again, imagine if you can watch a movie, and watching a movie will change the way or can increase the risk that you're going to behave in a way you otherwise wouldn't have. Imagine when you interact on a video game. I'll just leave you with that. Because even these video games, this is a scene from a video game. I 
I can crop off most of this because it's a violent sexual encounter in a video game. That is crazy. And you imagine a little eight-year-old, 12-year-old boy playing a video game where this kind of stuff goes on, the impact it has on their minds. The girls often are getting into the social media thing like I'm showing you. They're sexting. You guys know what that is? They take pictures of themselves in compromising positions or parts of themselves they should not take pictures of and send it to someone else. I know it sounds crazy, but it's very common. Body shaming and bullying, sexual obsession, predators. You see this? You should see who your daughter met online last night. You'll have these predators who, they're not really interested in, they're not, they're not really children. They act like they're children online so they can meet little children and go after them. And then I put on here narcissism of seeking likes. And so everybody, you know, people, how many pictures do people take before they post it? There's a certain amount of narcissism to that. To always want to look good and always present yourself to everyone else like you're perfect, like you're always having a good time, like everything's always going right. Social media, in my opinion, is going to alter the way a lot of people see themselves because they're going to put out a persona that they're always happy, always having fun, always in control, when in fact, the opposite might be what's true. You know what I'm saying? I think social media is something you are to be very, very careful with. It has its uses, especially in the spreading of the gospel and sending people you know, Bible quotes and doing things online and posting things to uplift the kingdom. But you got to be very careful because whatever you put on there, how does it stay there? Fair. 20 years from now, you're going for a job and the person pulls you up on Facebook and there you are. You understand what I'm saying? So you do have to be careful with that stuff. Ellen White says this, she quotes Ephesians 6, 12, she says, man is contending with foes who are stronger than he. Did you get that? You can't fight the foe. He's stronger than you. And the way the devil gets a lot of us, especially at this age, we think we can manage the mess. We can get into sin, we can get into trouble, but we can always find wiggle room out. But you don't realize your enemy is stronger than you are. So she quotes, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against wicked spirits in high places. Did you know that when you were a kid, the devil studied you? You were studying your facial expressions, what you like. When a girl walks by a young man and you look, the devil reads what kind of girl it is, what kind of reaction you get, what is it about her you like. They record it, they keep track of it. Seven years later, you're sitting there minding your own business and a girl who seems perfect to you walks in. And you think it's a coincidence. You don't know that girl's middle name is Lucy. Because she like Lucifer. And you don't know she's there to mess up your entire life, but she got the look you like, the shape you like, she smiles the way you like, talks the way you like, and you think, oh, look at this one. God has sent me an angel. Same thing goes for girls. The devil studies. He knows what you want, what you expect. And he'll give you the guy with the broad shoulders and the dimple in his chin. He'll send you what you think you want because he wants you to become distracted. So that's why you got to, when you start dating and stuff, you need to pray more than you normally pray. When you go to get married, we're told you should pray 
12 times more than you normally pray. I say 20. You need to be praying a whole lot. Because the, the emotions make you not always the most logical. Are you getting what I'm saying? That's You get that warm and fuzzy feeling in your chest when you see him. And he's so handsome. And you think he's going to make a lot of money one day. And you say, well, this is it. We're moving on up like the Jeffersons. And you're ready to go. And because you want it so bad, you don't always see the fact he's short with you. He's got a temper. You don't notice that he checks out every girl that goes by. You don't notice some of the glaring things, the warning signs you can't catch them because your heart is too busy fluttering in your chest. You wrestle not against flesh and blood. The devil's trying to send somebody to mess you up. Just like David and Messiah came across each other in the wrong way. Petros and Prophets, page 717 says, it is impossible for us in our own strength to maintain the conflict. Impossible. And whatever diverts the mind from God, whatever leads to self-exaltation or to self-dependence is surely preparing the way for our overthrow. I like this line. The tenor of the Bible is to inculcate distrust of human power and to encourage trust in divine power. In other words, you can't trust yourself. You can't. Because if you trust yourself, your flesh will make the decision. Your flesh is going to make the decision on superficial things most of the time. Your flesh is going to make decisions on how much money you think they're going to make later on or how pretty you think they are. But you got to be making decisions based on who are they in Christ. What kind of partner will they make with you if you're going to raise up a Christian family? You got to be thinking bigger than just what seems pleasing and pleasant uh, in the short run. So 2 Samuel 11 verse 3 and David sent and inquired after the woman Bathsheba and one said it is not this Bathsheba daughter of Eliab the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now you got to get this. These two men were important. Her grandfather or her father I should say Eliam he was one of David's advisors. So Bathsheba was someone David knew her family. And, and, and not that. One of his greatest warriors was Uriah the Hittite. One of his greatest warriors. So, go to the streets back home. You just don't mess with your homeboy's girl. You never do. 20 years later, you just she, she, she once dated your homeboy, you leave her alone. Not David. This was a warning. They told him this. This, right, this, this, this verse was the verse that was trying to tell David, listen, she's off limits. Because later on, his interaction with Bathsheba is going to sully his relationship with her father and, of course, lead to the murder of her husband. This was the warning. God was warning David with that statement right there. But look at what David does in verse 4. Bible says, and David sent messengers and took her. She came in unto him and he lay with her. But she was purified. That's why she was out there bathing. But she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned unto her house. David finds out she's a woman he ain't supposed to touch. Her daddy's on his ivory council. Her husband is one of his most faithful soldiers. This woman is off limits. Even if you want to live foul, David, this is one you ought not touch. David still sends messengers, takes her, and she comes in and she lays with him. 
Now, I want to, the worst thing some, some men will ever hear in their life is right here in verse 5. And the woman conceived and said to David and said, I am with child. Now, laugh, but you know the consequences and what happens. You got to call your mama and be like, Mama, this girl down here at college says I got her pregnant. Now, your mama, <laughs> your mama be like, good. I don't know how you're going to finish school. I don't know how you're going to pay for it. Your father and I have just decided to cut you off. Hopefully they won't do that, but she says, I am with child. So the story turns. And this is what the devil does. He starts out on a rooftop, bored one night, sees this pretty young thing bathing herself, and he just has to have her. But when the story's over, David is in a conundrum. He is in a pickle, as we say in the States. He's in a mess because now he's got to figure out what does he do with this child? And I want this number four of the lesson to be the enemy is the master trap setter. What is he? A master trap setter. He will set a trap for you years in advance. And I want to read this quote. Be careful what you entertain. Sin fascinates before it assassinates. Sin looks real good on the way up. But boy, that ride back down is often very difficult. Though formed in the image of his maker, man can so educate his mind that sin which he once, sin which he once loathed will become pleasant to him. As he ceases to watch and pray, he ceases to guard the citadel, the heart, and engages in sin and crime. The mind is debased, and it is impossible to elevate it from corruption while it is being educated to enslave the moral and intellectual powers and bring them in subjection to grosser passions. Constant war against the carnal mind must be maintained. You see that? Constant war. And we must be aided by the refining influence of the what? The grace of God. We're going to talk about grace in the second or third parts of this talk, which will attract the mind upward and habituate it to meditate upon pure and holy things. You need the refining influence of God's grace. I'm about to blow your mind. That means your focus isn't simply on what you should not do, which is what we are raised. You know, your mother said, you always listen, whatever you do, at least in America, they said, you say, whatever you do, don't bring no baby back in this house. They'll tell you what not to do. What I want you to focus on is the refining power of the grace of God. See, it isn't that the blood of Jesus saves you. Blood of Jesus sustains you. It empowers you to live a victorious Christian life. You can't do that in your own power. And that's why grace itself is a refining power. So I'll end tonight with this question. What are you doing on your rooftop? What are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you exposing yourself to? David walked out onto the rooftop, saw something he should never have seen. He should never have been where he was. He should have been totally somewhere else. When he gets up there and he looks down, he sees this beautiful woman. As David sees this woman, he becomes enamored with her and he must have her. He's got to have her. Even when the word comes back and says, David, 
This is not a woman you want to mess with. You're going to be messing with the daughter, the married daughter of one of your main advisors. And David, you're going to be messing with one of your main soldiers' wives. Off limits, David. He ignores the voice of reason. He ignores the word of God. Bouncing around in his head. David knows better. He knows the consequence of this in the law. He commits adultery with this woman. The covenant he's called the consequence is death by stoning. That's not a deterrent. I don't know what it is. And yet, in his lust and passion, David sends for her and lays with her and impregnates her. And we're gonna, the next two sessions, we're going to talk about where this takes David. Why it's so damaging to David long term. How one mistake leads to many more mistakes. Now, one mistake introduces the enemy into his house in a way that he almost cannot get it out. I'll close with a story of one of my patients. Years ago, I was working in an emergency room. Just doing some moonlighting, and a young lady came in who had been drinking pretty heavy the night before, and she couldn't fully remember what happened. She said she went interested in some boy and started drinking. Maybe they even slipped something in her drink, I thought, as the doctor, after she told me the story. She couldn't remember blocks of time, and sometimes in the States, especially if you go out in America for a nightclub or something, watch it drink, because they'll drop Roofies in your drink, date rape drug in your drink, and they don't just date rape girls in America. So if you're a boy, you better watch your drink too. You go over there. And in the UK, <laughs> just, I'm just telling you the truth. And so she couldn't remember what really happened, and the poor girl was so messed up. She only knew that she had been intimate the night before. She could not remember with who. We tested her for all of the sexually transmitted diseases, and I think I even somehow saw her again and was able to, you know, make sure we'd done all the tests and, and, and even go over the results with her. And by then, she was having some symptoms and some problems. It turned out she tested positive for some sexually transmitted diseases. She was beside herself. She didn't expect to go out for this to happen to her. She didn't want this to happen to her. There was no excuse for it to happen to her. She had to be treated with antibiotics. She had to be, she had to, you know, any partners otherwise that she had, she had to tell them that she'd been diagnosed with this stuff. And this girl began to cry. She began to boo-hoo, cry. She was beside herself. She was, she was emotionally sick. And the thought of all that she had gone through because she stepped into a, a space she wasn't really supposed to be. She, she didn't even really belong in that space, probably why some of the things that might have happened might have happened. She started to cry. I started to talk to her and tell her, what's the matter? You know, everything's going to be okay. It seems like everything you have is treatable. You know, you know, we'll be okay if you need to talk to the police. If you think something's gone wrong, you need to file a report with the police. There's certain things that need to be done. She said, no. I'm upset because... I feel like I lost a piece of myself. She said, I lost a piece of myself that I don't think I'll ever get back. 
And like I do with many of my patients over the years, I said, because of where we were, I said, by chance, are you a Christian? She said, yes, I'm a Christian. She said, but I don't know that God is going to forgive me because I've been behaving so badly. I've been acting so wild. I'm not sure God will want me in his fold or whoever, however she said it. And I said, young lady, let me tell you something. You don't serve the type of God who accepts you when you act right. You serve the type of God who accepts you regardless of how you act. The Bible says that, and I told her this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I want to leave you with that tonight. The devil may have messed with you. You may have made some mistakes. Some of you in here probably have stuff running through your mind about what you watch or what you listen to or who you've been with. Some of you may have already had your stint in the no-tell motels of this area or your hometown. I don't know. Don't really need to know. What I do know is you've not gone so far that God doesn't love you. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, you can't out-sin and you have not out-sinned God's ability to save you. And what I'm telling you tonight is if you're like David and Bathsheba and you've made a horrible mistake, the first thing you need to do is get off the rooftop. Come off the rooftop and stop looking around. Get back in the house and get busy doing the work God has for you. Because that'll help keep you out of trouble. Number one. Number two, if you've been in this mess, I want you to understand, as we're going to talk about later on in the week, you serve a God whose mercy endures forever. And the one thing I want to leave you with, I want you tonight to get the idea about purity and relationships and, and holiness and all the other things that you have probably all been raised to understand. I want you to get all of that tonight. But I want to go one step beyond that in the next two nights. Tomorrow night, we'll be talking about how is it that David went down this path and got into this mess? And how did he get, make it get so bad? That's what sin does. It makes bad worse. But before it's all over on Friday night, I really want some of you to come to a place where you take off the weight of guilt and shame for what you may have done so that you can walk in peace with Christ. Before it's all over, I need you to have the kind of relationship with God that you're not so worried about what you did that it keeps you from doing what God wants you to do. So we're going to talk heavily as we go forward about God's grace, about his mercy, about the consequences of sin. We're also going to talk heavily about something as Adventists we often don't talk enough about. And that's why I wanted them to sing the song Redeemed. I want to really focus on the fact that God is a God of redemption. That's why the Bible says a just man falls seven times. But what does he do? He rises every time. And the just shall live by what? By faith. The two verses are connected. The just shall live by faith and a just man falls seven times and rises every time. He's just not because he falls, he's fallen, not even because he got up. He's just because when he falls, he understands he can get up. He's just because he believes in the righteousness that is imparted to him through Christ 
by the blood of Jesus at the cross. And I want you to get that so that you don't, you're not Christians who live in guilt and shame. You don't live the rest of your life looking over your shoulder. You're not constantly worrying about what you did. I want when the devil reminds you of your past, I want you to remind him of his future. I want you to be the type of Christian that is not weighted down with what you did. You're the kind of Christian that says, Lord, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I'm going to live right for you now. And I'm not going to let the devil hound me with what I did. Instead, I'm going to live right because of what you've done for me. Amen? And I'm going to do this by grace, by the power of the blood of Jesus. As every head is bowed, I'm not going to make an appeal tonight. I'm going to leave this kind of solemn. I know some of you, some of this is really rattling around in your mind. You're really thinking about where you've been, what you've done, some of the stuff that's going on in your life. And I know some of it is painful. I know some of it is difficult. But I'm here to tell you tonight that Jesus, his blood still washes. It still cleanses. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Father, for being a God that despite the fact that we go up on the rooftop, despite the fact, Lord, that we wander to a place where we were never supposed to be in the first place, despite the fact, Lord, that we, we fail you, Lord, still your mercies endure forever. But Lord, tonight I do want to pray that these young people would make a serious vow to live righteously for you in the realm of sex and sexuality. That they will live according to your word. Father God, they would wait until the time is right before they get into sex and sexuality in their own lives. Father God, they would trust you that if they do it your way, they'll have a more complete and fulfilled life than if they do it the world's way. Lord, remove pornography for any in here who might be messing with that stuff. Remove it out of their lives. Lord, maybe there's some who are too caught up in social media, too caught up with, with, with a time on the internet. Lord, remove that from them if that needs to be removed. Lord, there's some in here who are in relationships that are not spiritually healthy. Not that they're equally or unequally yoked, but in the relationship they're doing things that you do not find pleasing. Father God, give them the courage to end what needs to end so that they can start to live the way you ask them to. Tonight, Father God, pour out your Holy Ghost upon this band of young people and break the chains of sin from out of their lives. Give them liberty. Give them freedom from sin and shame. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.